don't regret it. Yeah. And I'm not glad I did it. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It's like, it sounds like you don't regret it because you feel like it was a, a kind of spiritually centered decision, but you've got some concerns and you want to see mm-hmm. something, you want to see something different. Next and time. I am all for Donald Trump being held accountable. And I know that people in Congress are always trying to find something. They've just got to find the right thing. If they find the right thing, then they'll have the support to impeach him. But they're not paying attention to the right things yet. Welcome to the Depolarized Podcast. I'm Dan Koch. And I'm Ellen Morrow. And we are here to try and find common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology, and faith. Now, Ellen, you know me. I don't want to get too rah-rah about our own show. Okay. I don't want to brag, but we got a pretty cool comment today okay. from a licensed marriage family therapist in Philly. Does she know we're not married? Yeah, it's not about us. Oh, okay. It's not about our relationship. Clear that up, just in case it's that's, more that's confusing. her expertise in therapy that was the result of her comment, not uh, the dynamic between the co-hosts. <laughs> that's <laughs> for the best, probably. Yeah, that's probably better. Okay. But listen, so this is uh, a great quote. Her name is Meredith Monroe. She's from Philly. And she says, hey, guys, I'm new to discovering and checking out this podcast, so I've only heard a handful of episodes so far. But I just want to say that as a licensed marriage and family therapist trained in systems theory and a left-leaning moderate independent, I love what y'all are doing. Great. I think a lot about the current sociopolitical landscape and how much we really do need a lot of, quote, family therapy as a country. I'm not saying every single person should be willing to hear and engage the other side at all times. Boundaries and self-care are important. But as much as we are able, it's valuable to interact with people that think differently than we do. Listening and even validating does not equal approval. And as a system and a, quote, family, we all need each other. We can't dismiss a huge part of the population as worthless or bad or wrong and expect to be effective. Nor should we think that they're completely separate from us. All parts of a system affect one another and contribute to both function and dysfunction. Okay, family therapist soapbox time over. Keep up the great work. Well, that was really nice. How does that make you feel? She should be doing my job. (laughs) (laughs) No, your job is secure, Ellen. Your job is secure. Very put together, she sounds. Yeah, well, she also typed it. You know, she had time to think about it. You're on the fly here. Give give yourself a little credit. Mm. So, Ellen, let's remind everybody what we've done in the first three episodes. What was the first two? The first two, we were talking to the 19%, the white evangelical non-Trump voters slash non-Trump supporters. Yeah, and then last week? In episode three, we talked about evangelicalism and evangelical leaders and the influence yeah, and we looked kind of closely at that statistic itself, the 81%. Yeah. We talked with journalists and pollsters and all that good stuff. And this week and next, we're going to be talking to our white evangelical Trump supporters. Yeah, I'm excited about that. If you're a listener of this show, then it should go without saying that, of course, we think that Trump voters are not only people too, quote unquote, but that many of them actually have coherent worldviews, ways of seeing the world and politics. And they deserve to be listened to seriously. But here is something true about the following episode. No matter who you are, you will disagree with many things that are said Mm. on the microphones today. You might be a Trump supporter. 
and you'll really resonate with a lot of what you hear from your fellow voters, and then you'll disagree with Ellen and I in some of our reactions. Or mostly just you, maybe. <laughs> okay. Or you might be horrified at Trump, in which case you'll find plenty in the responses of the Trump voters that you disagree with or you even hate. Or you might end up thinking that Ellen and I go too easy on them or too hard on them. It's going to be impossible. This is going to be fun. It's going to be impossible to find that balance for every listener. So By the just... way, Dan, I haven't gotten any hate mail yet. <laughs> That's good. Three weeks in, no hate mail. I, I'll consider that a success. So we're trying to find this balance. And we, for guaranteed, you will think we didn't find it in some direction. But thank you for listening anyway. And we're trying our best. Okay, so the first couple episodes we addressed, let's say, the skeptical Trump voter. Right. Those who didn't really know if there were white evangelicals who were opposed to Trump. Yeah, or didn't know if they could trust them or something. Right. So this time we're going to do the mirror opposite. These episodes are addressed to people who share perhaps more your and I convictions, who are not so into Trump, and we're going to try and argue that they should take people who are into Trump seriously. So a couple quick methodological notes. Again, this is not a representative sample of all Christian Trump supporters. It's just some of them. And I did have a harder time finding women. So men are overrepresented in this sample. But I think that part of that is just my own circles of friends. I wouldn't read too much into it, honestly. A total of 10 Trump supporters were interviewed, but we are hearing from six of them. And some of them preferred to be anonymous. And this is really unfortunate, right? Yeah, because they don't want anybody to know that they voted for Trump. Well, or they'd feel like their jobs could be hurt, or, I mean, there's some, some yeah, serious... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's sad. It's sad that they have to feel that way. A vote for president should not result in that much fear. Especially because we tell everybody to vote. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but I don't blame them for wanting to be anonymous, uh, especially for folks like Winston, not his real name, who lives up here near did us. Did you pick that name or did he? He picked it. Yeah, nice. I like that. Tells you something about Winston. Uh, he lives up here in the Northwest. I asked him how much of his community voted for Trump and just listen to the difference between his family and his coworkers. Uh, if I just said all combined, I would say 50%. Um, family is probably 90%, 75% friends. Really unsure on church. Um, and I kind of like that. I don't really want to know. Um, yeah. And then coworkers, I'm just going to spitball like less than 1%. <laughs> less than 1%. <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow, okay. <laughs> less than 1% of his coworkers voted for Trump, he thinks, Ellen. Welcome to the Northwest. <laughs> so I know we already talked about how it matters to listen to people who are not like us, but I just want to hammer this home. Four super quick bullet points. I'm going to count them off with me. Number one, the human mind is tricky. We deceive ourselves regularly and predictably, and tribal thinking is very easy to slip into. Number two, our current social and digital media environment is full of algorithms that are designed to make companies a bunch of money and that are designed to keep us clicking and reading, and they do not incentivize us to think against our tribal identities. Number three, if you think it isn't worth your time to understand Trump voters, then it sure sounds like you consider them an enemy. And if you are a Christian, you are supposed to love your enemies. And it's hard for me to understand how we could possibly love a group of people without first at least attempting to understand them. Finally, number four, I often hear, I'm too busy speaking truth to power. I'm too busy working with people who don't have a voice to listen to the other side. 
But I think in that case, you're actually hurting the cause of the people that you're working for because if you can't convince anyone who doesn't already agree with you to care about the cause that you're working on, then no legislation will pass. Nothing will change, right? You okay with all four of those? I'm sh- Yes, all of it. Check, 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 check. Check, 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 check. Okay, great. So we're going to meet our voters now, four of whom I interviewed myself, as I said, one of whom, Ellen, you interviewed, your dad. That was terrible. And Joy was interviewed by Karina in Nashville. And one more thing that you're probably going to be able to pick up in my voice, but I think it's worth saying, I really enjoyed talking to these people. It was honestly a pleasure to ask these questions and listen to them answer, to get to know them. Many of them were very hospitable, had me in their homes, and really were just warm and likable people, just with some pretty different views. So here they are introducing themselves. Okay, so I'm here with my dad, who's a white man, and a Christian man, and a Trump man. Uh, I'm Phil Whitmarsh. I'm 82, and I live in Shoreline, Washington. Uh, My name is Joy Patton. I live in Nolensville, Tennessee, and I'm 42. Okay. My name is Seth. I live in Clarksburg, Maryland, and I'm 38. My name's Winston. I am 29 years old. I live in the Pacific Northwest. In addition to those five, we'll also be hearing from David, not his real name, who initially did give his own name, but after the emotional weight of what he shared with me, we both decided that he should remain anonymous. That's why we don't have a little intro clip for David. Anyway, we wasted no time with these interviews. I jumped in, and the very first question I asked was, why did you vote for Trump? It was just that he was the best of the two candidates. Thought it was a better option than Hillary. I think my main concern is what I would call cultural drift. Abortion is a very crucial issue for me, and that drives much of my thinking about who I vote for. And then the approval of gay marriage is an issue for me. I don't think that's biblical. So the whole sexual cultural drift, I just saw it as continuing with the Democrats in control. And so I'm, I was looking for an alternative. I mean, I would have voted for Mickey Mouse. I would have voted for, I mean... Uh, there's no way I could have voted for Hillary Clinton. I mean, I can't just imagine a world where I would have. Okay, so the story of my voting for Trump is that I really didn't want to. I honestly uh, tried to look at other candidates. I was looking at Jill Stein because I would have loved to vote for a woman. That was part of what was killing me about not voting for Hillary is because I was really wanting to vote for a woman. Then one day I was driving to work and I was like, you know what? I realized that I hadn't prayed about it. And in my worldview, I'm a Christian. And so in my worldview, you pray about everything. You invite God into everything that you do in life. And so I was like, I haven't prayed about who I want to vote for. So I prayed a little bit about it. And I just felt like God was saying, vote for Trump. And I was like, really? Do I have to? And I didn't really want to. But ultimately... Uh, I am more afraid of God than I am afraid of Donald Trump. So I trust God 
to know what's right for our country and where that goes. And that is not to say in any way that I think that every Christian should vote for Trump or that God told every Christian to vote for Trump. I'm not saying anything like that. I just know that for me, that was my personal decision. It's interesting that none of them said that they voted for him because they liked him. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty difficult. I didn't vote for Hillary because I liked her, though. That's not, in my mind, disqualifying at all. Yeah, but if you interview, you know, a handful of people normally during a normal election, right? most people find some sort of, you know, personal connection to them. They they like them. They're, right. they're likable. There's something likable about them. Well, so one of our voters who we're not hearing from, we went from 10 down to 6 just for sort of mental clarity. Uh, Jeff, he did like him and said that in his answer. So we had at least one. But if you remember talking with Roxanne last week, you know, she was talking about such a low percentage of people nationwide voted for Trump because they liked him. And especially within evangelical America, people overwhelmingly voted either against Hillary or because Trump was the lesser of two evils. If you ask them, that's what they would say. Right. And that's sad. I just think that's sad. Well, yeah, it's it's sad all around. Uh, they were the two least likable candidates in presidential history since they started asking that question in the 70s or something. So, of course, abortion is going to figure prominently for some of these voters. And I wanted to ask about that, make sure we covered that. So I asked them, how central was abortion to their vote for Trump? If you tried to break it out, you know, in percentage, I'd say at least 50%, maybe 70%. I would say that the issue of abortion is important. A lot of conservatives will say that it is the only issue. For me, it is not the only issue. I'm very, very pro-life, but it didn't factor in, like, in a super conscious way. I grew up in a world where abortion was just there. I mean, I'm totally against it, but... I'm 19, 20 years old. I grew up in this world the way it is. I don't like things about it. And I agree with older people on lots of the issues, but I'm somewhat resigned to accepting certain things. Not abortion, but um, does, any of that, does that make sense or not really? Yeah, I think that's actually really interesting. Uh, maybe our parents' generation can much more easily imagine a world where without Roe versus Wade, but you're 19 years old. Yes. It's kind of hard for you to imagine that. It's been the law of the land for... 40 years. So I do want to talk about this. I've done quite a bit of reading, and I am not convinced by the claim that by and large evangelicals voted for Trump based primarily on abortion or even primarily on Supreme Court justices. The data just does not back it up. Obviously, some of them did, but you cannot prove it nationwide with the data. So, Ellen, I'm going to read to you from this Pew study of self-identified evangelicals back in 2016, asking them which issues were, quote, very important to them. They could choose as many as they wanted. They were not limited to one issue. So here are those issues in order from largest number of them said was important to smallest number of them said was important. Got it? Got it. Terrorism. The economy. Immigration, 
foreign policy, gun policy, Supreme Court. There we go. Number six, health care, social security, trade policy, education, abortion. Number 11 out of 14. After abortion, we have treatment of minorities, the environment, and treatment of the LGBTQ community. I think a lot of people just focused on Supreme Court as being the abortion issue this last I think that year. they I think that they probably did, but what I'm saying is that it's still at number six out of fourteen issues. Number so, one was terrorism. Terrorism, economy, immigration, foreign policy, and gun policy all come before Supreme Court. Yeah. So evangelicals, statistically from Pew Research, are more likely to say their guns are why they voted for Trump, or are very, not why they voted for Trump, are very doing. important issues in the election, then Supreme Court, and then healthcare, social security, trade policy, education, and then abortion. Abortion was the, the end there. So it just, you can't show that abortion is why evangelicals voted for Trump. Here's another poll. This one's from Lifeway Research, asking white evangelicals not self-identified. These are evangelicals by belief. Okay, so this is a purer sort of group. Are these my people? These are your people. This is the Lifeway rubric, which is easier to pass than the Barna rubric, but still, it's like a four four theological belief test. In the 2016 presidential election, which characteristic of a candidate is most important in deciding how to cast your vote? Again, we'll go from top to bottom. I'm scared. Okay, top to bottom. Okay. Most important characteristic of a candidate. Number one, improve economy. Number two, maintain national security. Number three, personal character. Number four, likely Supreme Court nominee. Number five, protect religious freedom, position on immigration. Number seven, last place, position on abortion. 4% said that was the most important thing. And only 10% said Supreme Court was the most important thing. This is incredible to me. This is incredible to me because I think we just assume that we hear so many people talk about abortion being their their number one issue, but that's the numbers just don't show that. No, you, you can't prove it with any of the polling data. So you basically have to make some weird argument about the subconscious. I, I don't know. I don't know how you would back that argument well, up. What that tells me is why evangelicals care the most about protecting themselves and making money. Okay, that is a straw man. <laughs> no, look. Okay, so I would say this. Uh, terrorism, I'm with you. I think fear of terrorism is a very human thing, but it's so unlikely to happen to you. So I think there's kind of some psychology going on. But voting for a president based on the economy is like a super reasonable thing to do. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right, which is why they should feel comfortable just saying that. But a lot of them say it was just it's the abortion issue. And as an abortion right. maniac, I should not call myself an <laughs> Ellen I, Morrow I abortion maniac. I just it bothers me. But but I wish that they would they could have more confidence saying, you know, like my dad, when I interviewed him, his number one thing was like his 401k. Right. And I think that's great. Be, don't be ashamed to talk about that. But. Yeah. Just interesting. I'm not implicitly critiquing anybody here. I'm just saying. I know I am, which is why we need devil's advocate. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny that I'm playing the devil's advocate against you and defending the people that you think are devilish. That was supposed to be my my job. (laughs) That's great. And that's fine. I'm happy to, to have that job. 
the, it's just, it isn't about abortion. It just wasn't. Unless you posit some weird subconscious argument that it was, but no one was willing to admit that it was about abortion, which seems weird. Um, there's no reason that you would not say, I really care about abortion. I really care about the Supreme Court. Right. Because the Supreme Court is really important. You should I'm, be able to say it. I'm glad that the numbers show this, because this makes me feel like they're not just nuts. <laughs> If that's okay to say. Yes. Well, and you know, it's it's worth noting that uh, terrorism and the economy were up in the top two for liberal voters, too, I think. Like, terrorism is really I high. Mean, not, I, nobody wants terrorism. Obviously. That's not a, that's a bipartisan issue. Nobody wants right. terrorism. But it's just, it's interesting that people say it's very important to them. Mm. I suppose, yeah, that's interesting. I guess you would maybe just say, even if you don't think it's likely you might still think it's a very important issue. Yes, I'd like to not blow up at a baseball game either. Yeah. But anyway, so I just think that the abortion explanation is too simple. I, I do have what I think is a better explanation. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that this will be borne out in our voters. Uh, Christian Trump voters have a conservative worldview. More accurately, most of them have a white conservative worldview. And this is why they voted for Trump. Look at these survey responses, right? They have a conservative worldview that includes certain views on what's best for the economy, what's best for fighting terrorism, what's best for immigration, what's best for gun owners. They're conservative. They're, they're conservative white people. And so to vote for Hillary would be to vote against what they think is true about the economy, terrorism, immigration, Guns. gun ownership. Mm -hmm. Right. So it isn't just, well, we all would have voted for Hillary except abortion. No, there's a lot more going on here. Right. So if we want to ask the question, how could they vote for Trump? What we really should ask is this. Was Donald Trump enough of a wild card or enough of a bad option for them to vote opposite on all these issues for which they have a cohesive worldview already in place? Right. And then, of course, we have to add in that their other option is Hillary Clinton. And last week we talked about the problems posed by Hillary for evangelicals. So I don't have a problem with a conservative worldview. I think both conservatives and liberals are needed to balance each other out, to find good solutions to very complex problems. But here's another way to maybe say this. If I'm speaking to a Christian who voted for Trump, we actually don't just disagree about Trump or about Trump's personal moral failings or how serious those moral failings are. Statistically speaking, we actually disagree about the economy. We disagree about terrorism, about national security. We disagree about immigration. We disagree about gun policy. And that's not it, right? There's more and more and more. But already there, we've just made the conversation four times more complicated than, well, Trump is a bad person. Does that make sense? Yep. And it's also more than just, well, I know you want abortion to be harder or illegal, but Trump's so bad. It's like, well, they probably don't just want abortion right. to be hard or illegal. They also want all these other things that are part of a coherent worldview that I just don't happen to share on most of those issues. You have one choice or the other. Like for, for me, I probably disagree with my dad that I interviewed on, you know, 80% of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But because we are close enough on a lot of these issues, I'm in his camp. And that's very confusing. Yeah, you're broadly speaking politically yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. 
So does that make you understand your dynamic with your dad better by just introducing more nuance? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I think that it's always important, and this is with with relationships and not just politics, to find the things, the commonalities, the things that you do sync up on. three weeks ago when we had the Christian non-Trump voters and we asked them, what is the gospel to you? Yes. So we did that, right, because we wanted to give a Trump voter a look into whether or not they sort of shared the same theological beliefs about the most central claims of Christianity. It's time to turn the tables. Now we get to hear from the Trump voters what the gospel is in their own words. God is perfect and holy, preexistent before time, eternal, all that. He made us, we rejected him, and we all fell and were, were separated from him. We are incapable of earning our way back to him, you know, by doing enough good works. The good news is, is that even though he had a right to just cut us off and kill us and send us to hell, he came and sent his son to be a, a, a substitute for us so that we could take his righteousness and give him our sin. And then we would be justified and, and righteous and would get to go to heaven. So he does it for us and, uh, and he didn't abandon us. I'm leading a Bible study on the book of Hebrews right now. And what the book of Hebrews teaches is that God is satisfied with the work of Christ. And when I put my trust in Christ, then I'm believing God and God accounts the righteousness of Christ to me and he accepts me as his child. Oh man, it's the historical event of him the Son of God dying on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for his people, and uh, rising from the dead three days later. But the overarching message of the gospel is that God loved, for God so loved the whole world that he gave his Son so that we could all be reconciled to him. And I just, I want that for everybody. I would. I, and God, I believe God wants that for everyone, that he wants everyone to be reconciled to himself. And then when we are reconciled to him, then that allows us to live in relationship with people, even people that are different, people of different races, people of different beliefs. It allows us to all be united as one in Christ. If we had put all the answers from the Trump voters and the non-Trump voters together and mixed them up, wouldn't know who was who. You would have no idea. No idea. Yeah. So... Since I did these interviews, I, I'm a little bit more granular on it, but I only found pretty small differences. Like maybe the non-Trump voters mention the rest of the world a bit more and the Trump voters focus more on individual salvation. But I think that can be explained just the difference between a naturally conservative and naturally liberal personality. Basically, they are liberal and conservative people who believe the same gospel. Is, right. what, is how it feels And they to might me. just tell the story and read the story in different ways. Yeah, there's no conflict. Like they maybe right. have things that they focus on more that are a part of the They gospel. could all go to church together. Certainly they could. At, at least if, if, the, if the only thing that their church cared about was sort of gospel-centric things, then they definitely could. So the next question, uh, just like three weeks ago, if we're all Christians here, 
Maybe we disagree on how Christianity applies to the political sphere. So we asked, how should the teachings of Jesus inform a voter? Um, not voting for a God, not voting for a Messiah, but you know, just voting for, for men and understanding that these are fallible men who answer to God. Um, and then voting to, uh, to, pr- to promote good and to, to punish evil. So I, I think that's just the, that is the key function of government. I don't, that's an interesting question because I sometimes wonder how political Jesus would actually be if he were here. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that he would be very political. Uh, Because like I said, there's fault on both sides. I don't think he would pick a side. As much as possible, you vote vote for the person who uh, is going to, that the rules that they are proposing will be that match the rules of God for his kingdom and for the world. Notice anything different? No. What are you getting at, Dan? Well, it's <laughs> it's not a test, but I think I did notice a difference that those who voted against Trump tended to include something in their answer that specifically called out a need to be careful that we're voting in the interests of others, not just in our own interest. And I didn't hear that quite as much with the Trump voters. Again, taking it back to including the whole world instead of just individual. Right. Similarly, yeah. So uh, one example of that from our non-Trump voters, here's Arlen. And, And I think we need to start considering what's best for others and not just what's best for me. From what I can tell, the Trump voters emphasize the rule of law and voting for people who would enact policies and laws that were beneficial overall. That is, they emphasized sort of the system as a whole. But the non-Trump voters, they emphasized voting as a potential chance to directly make someone else's lot in life easier. That is, they emphasized the plight of particular citizens within the system. Right? So when it comes down to it, you can actually imagine all kinds of scenarios where going by either of those separate rules of thumb would produce the same thing, that is, voting for the same candidates. They're not mutually exclusive. Thinking system-wide and thinking of the plight of a person caught within the system might lead to the same policy. They might lead to different policies. They might lead to the same candidate or a different candidate. I just thought that was an interesting difference. All I can think about is how the Trump voters seem to be only reading from the Old Testament and the non-Trump voters, maybe just the New Testament. No. Can we describe it as just that? No, that's not true. But when you say law... Now that I'm sort of settling where I am in in politics, it does kind of seem that the GOP is sort of like the red right hand of the law. Well, I think, I mean, that was Nixon's thing. He was the law and order candidate. Trump certainly picked up on that and tried to run that way. The GOP convention was very much But law that and just order. distances themselves more away from the liberals these bleeding heart liberals or whatever and so if you're going to position position yourself as the law and order and then attack the liberals for being bleeding hearts it's sort of like well you know any everybody's going to be a bleeding heart if all you care about is you know i see you're saying from a political strategy standpoint they are going to just further distance themselves from the middle or the left. Right. And then identity politics follow along with that. Right. Okay. So if I 
yeah, if I identify with or as a persecuted group of people or any sort of minority, then I'm definitely going to stay away from the law and order party. Right. Right. But you could make a law and order case for. Uh, but it's hard to not think that you're talking about the show when you say law and order. <laughs> uh, you could make a we should have good concrete systems where the laws are followed. I mean, that's first of all, that's just commonsensically true. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you can also make a case that like, no, actually, the people in the immigration system, the people in whatever system we're talking about, the prison system, if the laws work well and if they are upheld, then we will have confidence to write good laws and we'll know that they'll be followed through. And actually, in the long run, more people will be served. Like you can totally understand an argument like that. Yes, I believe. Well, and law is good. Law and order is good. There's nothing wrong with law and order. Law and order SVU? Except for the show. (laughs) So something that we're going to talk about a lot this season and has even already been coming up today is the differences in mindset and even brain wiring between natural liberals and natural conservatives. When it comes to caring for the poor, loving one's neighbor, we might be tempted to think that the other side actually is not interested in this. But I will argue that the difference is more in how we think that help ought to be delivered than it is that one side wants to care for their neighbor and the other side doesn't. For now, you might just be wondering if these Trump voters who call themselves Christians have any sense of what they ought to do for their fellow citizens, or even for the undocumented who are living in the country, for instance. So I asked them, in the realm of citizenship regarding people currently in our country, what does God require of his followers? To do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But I guess just treat people with respect, care about them, and care about their welfare. What does God require of his followers? To love. Part of my story and my background, I have taught ESL to um, adult students in Nashville, and a lot of them were Sudanese refugees. I've taught people from all over the world that were coming here to try to find a better life. It was such a great experience, and I loved teaching them. They're the most beautiful people. They are resilient. They work so hard. They have a big heart. I have a heart for refugees and Mm -hmm. and immigrants, Mm -hmm. I would say. If I had spare time, that's where I would like to volunteer. (laughs) Make it your ambition to live a quiet life and to, you know, get along with your neighbors and everything. Or uh, when the Jews were exiled to, uh, to Babylon, they were instructed to, you know, do good for for the people to pray for the city, to to hope good for them. And uh, I think as Christians, that's what we always need to be. I think that's a primary tool of loving people and affecting change. I, I don't like when people settle for, oh, we're just gonna legislate morality for everyone. It's like, no, you, you gotta do good for people. You gotta shine the light. So Ellen, how are you feeling about your joke about them only quoting the Old Testament, not the New? <laughs> I feel a little bit bad. I'm sticking to it, but I, I do I mean, feel a little bit bad. Winston did quote the Old Testament, but it's like this beautiful section where in exile, as they are enemies among yeah. enemy people, the Jews are to love their neighbor. The Old Testament neighbor. is beautiful like a Quentin Tarantino movie is. <laughs> what did you think about that? I thought that when Joy was talking about her heart for immigrants, my feet, I just feel puzzled about that because my first reaction is to say well what in the hell 
how in the hell did you vote for Donald Trump? Hmm. But that also makes me want to know more about her and more about why she did, you know? Yeah. You know, remember her story is that she felt God tell her to yeah. vote for Trump. Yeah. So is it possible that Joy could both have heard God tell her to vote for Trump and have a heart for immigrants and refugees like she it mentioned? Is anything's possible. Yeah. It is interesting, though. There is obviously a little bit of cognitive dissonance there between those two things, especially since so much of Trump's actual campaign rhetoric was, a, you know, sort of anti-immigration, anti-immigrant. Right. And you would think that she would really have had a battle with that. I mean, she had kind of said, well, no, I don't really want to vote for Trump. But if you're telling me to vote for Trump, I'll vote for Trump. But I, I would hope that she had an internal battle about that. I, and yeah. that's what she was praying about. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. So let's take another tack here. Let's get a little bit more visceral. Let's get in touch with our feelings, mm-hmm. our, sort of our disgust. So if we're being honest, Ellen. Which I've never not been. <laughs> I'm not accusing you. Uh, we just find Trump like so unlikable in so many ways, right? That's accurate. Right. When you really don't like someone or you have all these reasons that you find them unlikable, it's very hard to see what another person can see in that person. Right. Right. Mm. So one of the questions I thought would be interesting to ask is what do you see in Donald Trump? I think there's different, you know, how there's different intelligences. I think that we've had presidents that are much more astute and that has been helpful for the term. I don't know how much Trump reads, but um, I think his major strength and I don't know what kind of intelligence you'd call this, but um, his major strength is intuition and being able to read a room and uh, being able to, to negotiate. And I think that's helpful in, in this situation. What I like about Trump is that he takes action. Mm. I feel like a lot of times and in the status quo in Washington has just been to talk about it and debate about it and come out on neither side and both sides stink and nobody does anything. And I feel like that allows us to be stuck where we are. And what I see in Trump is that he takes action. He's there there have been attempts to reform healthcare. The tax bill, no, it's probably not perfect, but it's a step at tax reform. And we're actually trying to accomplish something. And I don't even I don't I don't even know if it's the right thing or the wrong thing, but I just know that something has to change. We can't maintain the same trajectory that we've been on, even if a lot of people don't like it. And sometimes that's what leadership does, honestly. Like at the end of the day, you build a consensus, you try to get agreement, but at the end of the day, the leader has to make the decision. And I feel like Trump is willing to take those risks and make those calls. I don't always appreciate how he does it, (laughs) but I'm sure we'll get into that. (laughs) And I know that people said this a lot in the campaign, but we just like that he says things the way they are. I, I sort of, like that he just says how he feels and by and large he's not lying by and large you may have noticed that this show has no advertisements and i hope that you have also noticed man it looks like a lot of work went into this thing well a lot of work has gone into this thing i am trying to produce 
an NPR level podcast without a staff, whereas most NPR shows have many staff members dedicated to them. However, you can support this just like you can support NPR and PBS. You can go to patreon.com slash depolarize, or you can go to depolarizepodcast.com and click become a patron. And for as little as $3 a month, you can support the work of this show, possibly future podcasts that I work on, and you can get some exclusive material. I send stuff to the patrons that no one else hears about once a month. So go to depolarizepodcast.com and click become a patron if you'd like to support what we're doing. Thank you. So Seth and I are going to have to agree to disagree on the not lying bit. Ellen, I imagine, are you in that boat? I'm in that boat. But you don't have to take our word for it. Here is John Ward, who you might remember from last week, senior political correspondent for Yahoo News. Trump has demonstrated over time a disdain for facts and truth. That's a fact that that is the case, too, because he has repeatedly said things that were demonstrably untrue. My favorite example was I was in New Hampshire and I saw, I was reading through transcripts of the Sunday shows and Trump had just repeatedly denied ever calling John McCain, I think it was a loser. Anyway, he repeatedly, you know, said the opposite, denied ever saying what he had clearly said on camera. And it was just one of these things where I just thought, what is going on here? How can someone running for president say, I never said that thing that I said on camera. It, it just boggled my mind. And he has, he has shown this disdain for truth and facts. Is that a moral failing or, or is that a, you know, is that something else? Does that fall into sort of technical qualifications for the job? I mean, I think it's both um, because yeah, I think that's a hard one. The way that he communicates creates an atmosphere in which it's harder and harder for Americans who live next to each other are related to one another, can agree on under, on a basic understanding of what is actually happening right now or ha- what happened last year. So that last point is really interesting about Trump kind of affecting the climate of accepted fact within the United States for people just trying to talk about the world who, who might disagree. But let's try and depolarize a little bit here. Like, let's give Seth the benefit of the doubt. Seth is the one who said that, by and large, Trump is not lying. What do you think that he might have meant by that, Ellen, that that you could get behind or see his perspective on? Maybe things like, you know, most blue-collar workers in America feel ignored or pensions are out the window or, you know, things like that that are true that he's just rallying for. Like there, he's yeah. found his base and he's going to wave their flag kind of thing. Okay, so that's one. In my mind, I think he could be saying something like, Trump is saying difficult truths about the world that most people do not want to acknowledge. And he talks about those things regularly. And so, especially if you're thinking about like the campaign, even though, yes, there are tons of little things he says that are false all the time, the general message he's giving is like uncomfortable but true that's kind of what i think Seth like is when he at. talks about terrorism like give me some examples what do you like give me some exam- examples terrorism is hard because actually i think that he 
inflates the uh, likelihood of terrorism and the instances of terrorism to make them sort of front of mind issues when in fact they should be totally back of mind issues. But maybe something like, um, I mean, I, I might pinch myself for this later, or hit myself for this later, but even talking about the liberal bias of the media, I mean, that's something that, you know. Oh, yeah. No, that's a good one. Roxanne mentioned that people are acknowledging this more and more. They're being open about it. It is true. I mean, Jonathan Haidt and others started Heterodox Academy not because of the lack of conservatives in the political sphere, but in academia. And it's similar. The people go into journalism are the similar type of people that go into, you know, being a humanities professor or something like that. So it's real. So I think that's the kind of thing he speaks sort of truthfully about. Of course, when he does it, he says false things all the time. I, I think that they're obviously false. But it's like he can't help it. Yeah, it feels that way. I'm just I'm just trying to think of a way that I can take Seth and and see what he means, you know, without just judging. It's not like everything that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth is a lie. Of course not. So, yeah. Yeah. Let's be with Seth on that one. No, I mean I'm not I still I can't be with him. I don't think he's a truthful person. And what John mentioned about he he sort of obscures facts all the time for his own benefit, you know, the even as stupid as the inauguration crowd you know, it's that's, or his electoral college. That's win. what doesn't make any sense to me. It's it, it's he lies about the real dumb little stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't. I it's don't understand. Petty. I don't understand why he does that. I'm not going to venture like some sort of amateur psychology guess. But back to the question of what the voters see in Trump. Uh, I mentioned that we weren't going to hear much from Jeff Pearson earlier i said that was he the who was he's was the one who actually did say he likes trump oh um, okay. when explaining why he voted for him here is a bit of his interview that i did not want to leave out when we went down from 10 voters to six about what he sees in trump i voted for trump because of his leadership style kind of he took the bull by the horns it was something fresh it was something new and different and I really like that. I gravitated towards that because I'm rebellious in nature. So I'm going against conformity. And Donald Trump really stood out to me as someone who is going to go against what has been a gigantic Titanic ship moving in one direction. You remember earlier that Phil mentioned the cultural drift in America as his primary concern. One of the things I was wondering with him was, did his vote for Donald Trump address that drift? I think the appointment of Supreme Court justices played a big part in that, that he said he would and he has appointed a conservative uh, judge. In terms of changing people's minds, I'm not sure Trump's the guy who's going to do that. <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, so that's that's kind of what I was getting at. And that makes sense that it's not so much that you think that you have a way to change the mind of the culture, but rather, at least at a legal level, you'd like mm-hmm. to do your part to kind of stop the drift. Right. Yes. Ellen, you're looking a little forlorn here, or just deep in thought. What do you think about that? Well, sometimes I think it's just generational, but A, I really don't like when people 
throw into the same bucket abortion, LGBTQ stuff. I just it's so different and it's it's just so different. You don't like that term moral drift because you think there's a bunch of separate moral questions that have little to do with each other. For example, I am pro-life, but I'm also pro-gay marriage. So don't talk to me about a cultural drift when I think it was the right way to go to make whatever kind of marriage legal. Yeah, interesting. Uh, When you say whatever kind of marriage, what do you mean? I just mean that I feel like the United States of America is not a Christian nation, and it hasn't been for a very long time. And marriage in our country is just a legal issue, and it has a lot to do with health insurance and finances. You know, there's so many more legal loopholes to get through when you're a gay couple, and it's just so silly. It's silly to me that we would not allow them to me, that that kind of stuff is human rights. It's a human rights issue to me, and it's not affecting anyone else. So it's weird for me to hear, and it's usually older people, but it's weird to me to hear people talk about gay rights as if they're being affected by it. And I'm always confused by that. How are they? How is Phil being affected by the quote unquote cultural drift of? gay rights. You know, I don't understand that. None of his rights are being taken away. Yeah, I might not be the best person to answer that, but I know there are people who would have arguments on that end. Something like perhaps the moral permissiveness of the society in which their children are raised. Something like that. Which brings me back to, I don't believe that the U.S. is a Christian nation. And I think that tends to be kind of a splitting point for a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, look, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with you. I'm not even sure. I'm not sure I agree with you either. It's you just sound like a libertarian right now. I am a libertarian. I'm a registered libertarian in the state of Washington. <laughs> yeah, well, then, well, we're definitely going to disagree on a lot of that stuff. But I think that what I'm interested in your response is the fact that you kind of bristle at this monolithic moral drift where you think, well, I'm pro-life, but I think that this thing about gay rights has actually been progress towards something better. So it's not a monolith. Well, I think it's because I'm pro-life. I'm for supporting like the well-being of all people. I I see what you're saying. You would consider gay marriage a part of a sort of holistic life agenda. Right. I guess what I'm just saying is that for you, it's a more complicated soup. It isn't just, well, it's all getting worse. Yeah. Some things yeah. are getting worse and some things are getting better. Well, because you can't throw abortion into the sexual, what did you call, what did Phil, what was the term? Sexual, sexual cultural want, I, drift, I want, yeah. Yeah, I keep wanting you to say sexual revolution, but I don't want to know what that means. If we have another one. You don't want to know what it no. would be like? <laughs> I mean, if it happens, I'm definitely conservative. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so you're, right now, if there's another sexual revolution, I'm you're scared. not in. I'm locking my doors. Whatever that might look like. For me, listening back to Phil's answer, it's just there's some tension of like electing a twice divorced, unrepentant sinner to the Oval Office to stop the moral decay of American society. Right. And this was what I was thinking earlier is it almost a lot of the Trump voters, the evangelical Trump voters, it seems like it doesn't really matter who Donald Trump is or what he does. I mean, behavioral wise, like how he behaves. 
as long as he is, you know, doing X, Y, and Z for them. Yeah, procedurally. I mean, that's what Phil's saying. He's just, he wants him to get judges in there that will do what they can to stop this drift. Okay, I want to play one more clip from Jeff before we stop hearing from him, just because he mentioned something unique that nobody else brought up, that this is how available and connected the Trump and Pence team is with their supporters. I do appreciate that there is a relationship that's built. A lot of times, a presidency, you get elected, and then you never hear from them again. And social media has been around, but nobody ever really used it to continue the conversation. Hey, this is what's going on. We know the media is out there doing whatever they're going to do, but we want to make sure, hey, this is where we're at. But I appreciate the fact that I get these consistent communications that I've never had before, never seen before in politics. And that was happening before the moment that I kind of showed support. All of a sudden, I felt this relational aspect with their leadership and and their focus. And they're like, come aboard. It's just like a a big ship. Hey, you're with us. Get on board. You can be a part of the conversation. And that is something I'm very pleased with. And that feels just quite different to you than than, uh, what you're used to with American politics. Very different. Because our voice is usually, you made your vote, and that was it. And then, thank you, we'll see in two years or four years or whatever election we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I worry that people are so quick to latch on to things based on feelings. It concerns me a little bit. It, it To me, it just sounds like he's just eating it up, you know, and Trump's tweeting at three o'clock in the morning, whatever. Like, even if, you know, how a lot of times Trump will, like, say just really mean things about people. Mm-hmm. To me, now Jeff sounds like a really nice, smart guy. And what I want to ask Jeff is like, okay, well, what about this tweet? Did you feel connected then? What about this tweet? How do you feel about that? You know, I, we almost need to have a tweet breakdown. Break the tweets down. Yeah. Where's Matt Carter? <laughs> yeah, that's that's hard. Yeah, I, I hear that. It's fascinating to me, Jeff's perspective on that, though. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed that anybody would say anything like that. No, I think like, he's, it's pretty on point. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it it definitely helps me understand it a bit more. I'll say that. And again, it's almost like the thing we have to constantly remind ourselves when we are talking to Trump voters, thinking about Trump voters there were the two most unlikable candidates in modern presidential history running against each other. Here's Seth, just in case we've forgotten that fact. These are two relatively immoral people, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Like, clearly, like, I don't know how we reached so far down into the bottom of the barrel from both parties, but, like, we managed to do it. And it was like, this is incredible. So in my darkest, most partisan, most tribal, most polarized moments, I found myself wondering at times, has Trump done anything that any reasonable person could consider has been good for the country? Hasn't he simply failed and failed and failed? Um, But I'm going to go to the Donald. There's a whole running list of, yes, I am a member of the Donald. Um, David pulls up his list from the Trump-praising Reddit group, the Donald. There's a list. Okay. Trump admin accomplishments, there we go. Anyway, first off, everybody I interviewed was at least reasonably happy with the Neil Gorsuch nomination to the Supreme Court, if not extremely happy. 
One voter said that if that's all they ever accomplished, that would be enough. Beyond that, there was actually a pretty wide array of views on what Trump had done that would be good for the nation. I think what the administration's been doing with uh, enforcing our current immigration laws has been really good because we do have good laws already on the books, but most people don't even know they exist because they've just been ignored at a federal level. And so the problem of illegal immigration, which in my opinion is a problem, has been exacerbated by that and it's sort of become a political football. And so just to see an administration start to enforce laws that are already on the books, I think is a good thing. People can debate all day about how he delivers that message. I think the stuff that, that's in place is pretty common sense. So I'm glad that they're enforcing it. What else has Trump accomplished thus far that has pleased you? Yeah. <laughs> Just raised a stink. <laughs> I'm not sure he's really accomplished anything. I'm not really sure I voted for Trump as much as it was against the establishment and against the direction the country was going. Uh, in terms of his policies, I think we're happy with what he's done, restricting immigration somewhat. And the two things that I've really appreciated is his choice of Pence as vice president, and then of Gorch for the yeah, of course it's yeah for the court. Rumor has it they're they're working on something for uh, banning late term abortion, and I'm I wholeheartedly support that. Trump has pledged to sign legislation that would support that. So I think that's good. I think his push for tax cuts has been great. That's up to Congress, obviously, but I think his lobbying for it's been solid. I look at the presidency of Trump in two different ways. In comparison to Hillary, it's a 9 out of 10. Like he's done basically no wrong compared to Hillary. But when the scale, but when the standards of what Trump said for himself, like a 5 or 6 out of 10. Well, my 401k has increased. Okay. I'm worth more money now. When did that happen? During the last eight months, the stock market is higher than it's ever been in the history of our stock market. So the stuff he's lobbying for so far, I'm, I'm pretty happy with. I thought that his travel ban was a good thing. I didn't think that that was a bad thing. I thought it was based on intel that, was, that had been stacked up for quite some time, in, actually from the previous administration. And I recorded most of these interviews in late summer, early fall, right after hurricane season. I think the way he's handled these recent uh, storms, you know, for some reason, that's a big deal, too. Uh, You mean Irma and Harvey? Right, right. Uh, Maria. um, Yeah, I think the administration's been kind of on point with that. That's good. I just want to give a shout out to Puerto Rico. Half of it still doesn't have power. Yeah, I I think that this, my interview with Seth might have been before the Puerto Rico disaster. So cut him slack on that. But look, the, the things that these voters like about him, most of them like the things he's done because he's done conservative things. And that has to be okay, right? Right. And it doesn't matter to them what kind of character he has as long as he's doing a yeah. conservative way. So there is this stat that gets thrown around a lot. Some percentage of Trump supporters say there is nothing he could do that would make them support him. Dan, this is the one thing that scares me to death. Okay, well, allow me to maybe scare you even more. The same polls that find that, they always find that people on the left are just as unlikely to support Trump. They say there's nothing he could do to win their support. This is why it's so scary. (laughs) So it's scary that like... 
50% of the country or it, whatever. It just scares me that people are so unwilling. Either, either direction. Either direction. Yeah. It's like a huge tug of war. Yeah. It scares me. Well, I agree. But let's just talk about judging. I mean, this is definitely some log removal rather than spec removal from our opponent's eye. If the left is just as unwilling to support Trump as the as some people on the right are unwilling to stop supporting him, how are those any different? They're the same to me. It's equal. Yeah. Equally scary. I'm telling you, this is scary to me. I don't know what else. I'm flailing my arms around right now, and you're still uh, yeah, not getting how I'm, scared I am about. No, this. I get it. I you're not scaring me. I'm not feeling scared, but I understand that you're scared. I think it's a problem. I agree, but I'm not feeling terrified physically. Well, maybe, I don't know what I have maybe to. You should. I don't know what I have to do to make you content with my reaction. Anyway, we asked our voters about this. If there's anything he could do that would cause them to not support him any longer, I'm by no means. Uh a rubber stamp for the guy. And it's like, yeah, there's lots of things he can do that would cause me to begin to speak out against him. In some ways I do already. I think that, I think the, the waffling on the healthcare stuff has been terrible from, you know, to me, it's like you ran on a campaign of repealing Obamacare, uh, honor your word. Like it's, to me, it's pretty pathetic that, that you won't lobby more aggressively for that. And I'm, I'm surprised he hasn't. If Robert Mueller finds that Trump knew about his aides actively colluding with Russia to beat Hillary, what do you think ought to happen? I think, again, going back to what I said before, I don't really care if he <laughs> doesn't make it all the way, um, but I, I think there should be consequences for that and potential hearings and uh, impeachment for it. Yeah. So, so you, you think yeah. that if it could be proven that Trump himself was aware of collusion with his campaign and, and Russia, that that's an impeachable offense. I think so. If they were trying to sway the election and yeah. Yeah. I mean, when he wants to call any Mexican immigrant a rapist, no, like you can't do that again. He shouldn't <laughs> take away his Twitter account or like, let's stop making a big deal about the stupid stuff that he says. Like, let's stop repeating it. Let's stop sending it everywhere so that it gets repeated. So he gets attention for it. Like even this Muslim video that he, the anti-Muslim video that he posted, it's like, he's just, I, I guess he's not dumb. It's like, you just don't retweet that stuff. Like you can't do that as the president. He doesn't get it. The first thing is the Saudi Arabian trip. Because I think the Saudi Arabians is basically a terrorist nation um, with a wide body terrorist. And he goes over there and he acts tough. He says he's going to act tough on them, but they treated Donald Trump like a king. So Donald Trump is prone to arrogance. So he's like, yeah, these people treat me like a king or something. You know, I just want to go over to them and so and be friends with them. So that's and that's what really annoyed me because he did hard one on Saudi Arabia and then he turned and that really ticked me off because that's one of the issues I vote for him on is Saudi Arabia is basically like Iran to me. Not Man, I, I'm actually, it's cool to hear you say that because that was one of the things that seemed most glaring to me as well that we can agree on is that, yeah, he spoke highly of them because they rolled out the red carpet for him. He loves that. The serious strike made me mad because, I mean, I don't know how I feel about Assad, but I hate ISIS more than I hate Assad. So I just want to say Winston sounds so level-headed and it's so refreshing to hear a Trump voter saying, yeah. like, well, hey, if this is true, then he should be impeached. That's yeah, I all. I, that. That's all. A lot of people just need to hear that. Yep. But then Joy comes in. 
saying, oh, Donald Trump just shouldn't retweet the Muslim hating videos. Yeah. So, again, it it just kind of seems like he can still watch those and love those and be all for them, but just don't retweet it. That's scary to me. Yeah, but she was criticizing him for sure there. Yeah, but she was basically saying, just don't retweet it. Yeah. Well, also she was saying- I need to just call her up and talk to her. (laughs) You need to hang out with Joy. (laughs) But she was also saying like, and the media should just ignore the Twitter of the president of the United States, which is a problematic claim, I think. Mm. I mean, I get it, what she's coming from, but I don't know if that's- It's just not- Reasonable. It's not reasonable at all. And the president of the United States of America's Twitter should be public and- open for scrutiny and you we should be more concerned about the the hateful things that he's retweeting not because he is retweeting them and that's making a mess for us politically but because he's watching those things and enjoying them and saying yes this is where i'm at well speaking of twitter i asked these guys as well has trump done anything that you've disapproved of and here's phil Tweets all the time. Tweets, yeah. Honestly, what's disappointing me is the turnover in the staff. Mm. What I was trusting would happen when Trump became president, I was trusting that somebody would take over his Twitter account, which did not happen. (laughs) I was trusting that he would feel the weight of the presidency and it would help calm some of those adolescent tendencies down. Some days, yes. Some days, no. Like, like, you know, as a candidate, you mouth off and you say a lot of things because you don't have all the behind the scenes information about what North Korea is actually capable of. You don't have all the, you're not read into all of the things that have been going on in the Middle East that, that we don't even know about. And so I think once you have the totality of that knowledge, it changes the way you make those decisions. And I was initially very pleased with the kind of people that he was putting around himself. Like I really liked Rex Tillerson. I I really like Mike Pence. And I was trusting those people to keep him in check. And honestly, I'm trusting the whole system to keep him in check. I'm trusting the Congress to do its job and keep him in check. Um, I'm trusting the Supreme Court to keep him in check, which they have been doing by, you know, declaring his first two, those immigration edict things, declaring those unconstitutional. That's that checks and balances that our system has Mm -hmm. that I'm trusting will continue to work. And I would definitely support continue working. What what concerns me is like all of the the constant kind of turnover in Mm -hmm. the White House. Um, because that doesn't say like a steadiness in mm-hmm. leadership to me. And it also, I get afraid that he's getting rid of people that disagree with him. Mm-hmm. And that to me is incredibly terrifying because that's the making of a dictator. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Trump has like the ego of a dictator for sure, but I'm trusting our system to work in such a way that keeps all of that in check. But if he keeps turning over people and reappointing people, that that's honestly what makes me nervous Mm -hmm. oh that was really hard for me to listen to why it just seemed like and joy if you're listening to this now we we're probably friends in real life (laughs) already but i just want to say how did you not see that coming my experience with a huge church drama and turnover and everybody going to a new church saying the most important thing to me now is knowing that my pastors are held accountable and knowing that there's some sort of structure so I can feel spiritually safe in this environment. Why is it 
that after Donald Trump became president, people are learning about the way he runs his business. If people were so pumped about him being a businessman and that being good for presidency, why didn't anybody run checks and balances then to make sure that he was the kind of businessman that they wanted running the country? Because he's probably been kicking people out for a decade that disagreed with him. You know, it's like we we gave him the throne and now we're so shocked that he is firing people that he you know, that, that he feels threatened by or, or that don't agree yeah. with him. A lot of people are also leaving of their own accord or ha- are being indicted for crimes and so are leaving. Right. Which, I, is, it, wait, which is really juicy. And I kind of love that. OK, well, we should news. fight that. Fight that. Right. Impulse. But I do love it as a, a news junkie. I do kind of love it. It's very entertaining. Yes, uh, it is. But it is not good. Nope. Um, so it sounds like there's a naivety there that is frustrating to you. Not just joy. I think it, it it's just as a whole. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe there is. Yeah. Our final question for today. Could Trump go even further and actually lose their support altogether? I'm not sure. Uh, I guess if he would change his view on transgender people in the military, uh, if he would, if I would see him contributing to the culture drift, that drift which... Yeah. When you look at the bus episode, you, uh, <laughs> how you have do you, to admit that it's a possibility. How do you balance all that stuff? Yeah. Number one issue I voted for him was illegal immigration. If he could, did amnesty and no border wall, if he compromised and did some weak-ass Marco Rubio shit, no way. So if he did something like that, I'd seriously reconsider it. Or if he went really soft on terrorism. Or if he just got us into some really stupid war, but that's about it. What is something that Trump could do or say that would cause you to stop supporting him? Uh, a couple things. If he said, I'm going to amnesty everyone today, and if he said, I'm not going to build the wall anymore, I think those would be the two primary things. I think third to that would be, you know, I'm going to invade some random country. I'd be like, okay, this is, I threw my vote away on this guy. This is yeah. terrible. Yeah. Well, look, next week, we're going to hear some more from these voters. Um, Questions that we're going to ask will include, are they getting their politics from the pulpit, from their pastors? Are they exclusively consuming conservative media? Do they actually think that Trump is a Christian? And how did they respond to the Hollywood access tapes? And just to keep you coming back, things are going to get pretty emotional next week, and I think pretty powerful. Here's just a little snippet. It just hurts because we're told we're not human. I just, I mean, we have reasons. I mean, we just, we're just like everybody else. We just, we're doing the right thing and everybody hates us for it. Just, It just hurts. <laughs> I don't know why I'm crying. It just, it just hurts. It's okay, <laughs> see, man. Thanks for being so honest. I appreciate it. To see my whole town just go downhill just hurts. Donald Trump's the first person that got us. He's the first person that like, actually at least pretend to give a damn about us since Reagan or even before that.
Ellen, any final thoughts before we slide this uh, Viking canoe, light it on fire, and wait for next week? Well, now I just want to give David a hug. David, I can't wait for next week, buddy. Yeah, let's conclude, rather than with that clip, with one that makes us feel good. Okay. Feel good about ourselves for even bothering to take the time to ask these questions, to listen, not just you and I, Ellen, but to anybody who's been listening to this episode. Here's a clip to make you feel good about this And her work. name's Joy. Yeah, and it's going to be from Joy. To feel joyful. My new friend. Hey, call me girl. That was very thorough. Nobody, Thank you. Nobody has like sat down and really asked me what I think in a really long time. Like I haven't been on this side of the table in a yeah. really long time, it feels like. And so I'm usually like the one that's pushing the conversation <laughs> and asking the questions. Or in my profession, I can't. I can't say what I believe. I can't say what my personal opinion is because of my profession. And so to have someone who actually asks me is really, really nice. And I and that's for anybody. Like when, when somebody pays attention to you and asks you what you really believe and what mm-hmm. you really think, who doesn't love that? Right. Does that make sense, Ellen? Yeah, sure does. More on that in the future... <laughs> It's the stupidest thing I've ever said in a microphone. (laughs) Yeah, sure does. (laughs) Back to you, Al. Stupid. (laughs) It's because that's that's true. I don't think anyone would say that, but blah, 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 blah.